You've tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 Minutes with Brad Bollier. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Dave Robison. And I'm Moses Siragar. And you've tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes With. 20 Minutes With is our chance to sit down with some fantastic authors and discuss their craft so we can improve our own. And that is the plan this evening, sir. How are you doing? Fantastic, thank you. Excellent. Any any word on the on the incumbent Kickstarter that you were alluding to last episode? Uh, since my head is firmly in the book that I'm revising right now, it's a little hard to think about <laughs> two, thing, two things at the same time. So uh, no news yet, but I do appreciate you asking. Excellent, excellent. Keep us posted, man. You know, you know we're behind you 100% on that. Appreciate it. Awesome. Well, Moses, let me let me introduce you to our our guest host for this episode of Twenty Minutes with, um, the seeds of literary fabulosity were sown for our guest host in a little red brick schoolhouse near Lake Michigan in Wisconsin. It was here that he a wrote his first true fiction tale, B, got a taste for the pride a writer feels from the accolades of his peers, and C, where he first subverted the status quo. (laughs) It was a fourth-grade assignment to write about the parts of the body. And not content with a mere report, our guest host drafted a taut and gripping tale, using the organs of the body as his cast of characters. The dialogue was so compelling that the teacher actually read it out loud to the class. And that first heady rush of literary glory was doubtless a catalyzing moment in his creative evolution. Now, it was in that same schoolhouse that our guest host participated in a ritual that it seems is all too familiar to nearly every spec fic writer. A friend handed him a copy of The Hobbit. Dun, dun, dun! I picture the heavens parting and the angelic choirs singing at this anointing uh, that occurred in the halls of the school. He mainlined that classic piece of fiction and moved on to Lord of the Rings. And not only did he become hooked on the fantasy genre, but the rich world building and luxurious names ensconced in those tomes took root in his soul and would define his writing process in the distant years to come. Now, Moses, I gotta tell you, I've come to the conclusion that were it not for Tolkien, there would be no role-playing game industry. Mm. For for as is so often the case, reading JRR it leads inevitably to dice bags and character sheets. <laughs> and while the fiction our guest host read uh, may have been pure fantasy, he was all over the map with his role-playing game. Sure, there was D&D, but there was also Champions and Rollmaster, James Bond, GURPS. In fact, to this day, one of his villains and vigilantes characters, a hero named Dart, who would climb walls like Spider-Man and shoot darts at his foes, holds a special place in our guest host's heart. Now, it should come as no surprise that while he enjoyed playing these games, he gravitated to the role of Game Master, so he could create the worlds and the stories told therein. Later, he studied computer science at the Milwaukee School of Engineering, and it was here 
that he began working on his second work of fiction. Six chapters he wrote, and I got some good feedback on those chapters. But life can be a little distracting for a young man in college. Uh, And it wasn't until he moved out to California 10 years later and the whirlwind of life calmed a bit. And in that relative silence that followed, our guest host heard the words whispering to him. He surrendered to their siren song and began writing in earnest. He read books on writing and began submitting his work, suffering the lash of the rejection letter. He also started traveling the convention circuit, and it was there, engaging with both his peers and the literary idols of his youth that he sensed the depth of commitment required to craft and polish his stories. He was all in. Now, he was accepted in 2003 uh, to the Viable Paradise Writers Workshop, and it was here that our guest host discovered the depth of his passion for his writing. Uh, When asked to read some of his work aloud to this august literary peerage that hosted the group, his throat seized up with nervous emotion. Now, Moses, I I need to be very clear about this. I had the pleasure of attending one of our guest hosts' presentations at Gen Con this year, and he is an excellent speaker. But, But back then, in that workshop, reading his words aloud was one of the hardest things he'd done. Now, he cites this as one of his more embarrassing moments, so of course we have to showcase it on the intro. But honestly, I consider it to be a profound measure of his complete and heartfelt investment in his work. I take this as a good sign. Now, his big break came when his novel, The Winds of Kalikovo, was published by Nightshade Books and received a radiant reception, earning him top debut novel accolades in 2011 from Ranting Dragon and Mad Hatter book reviews. The second book in the series, The Straits of Galahesh, was similarly welcomed by the community, but just as the third novel, The Flames of Shadam Kora, were being prepared, Nightshade imploded. Undaunted, Okay, maybe a little daunted. But nevertheless, our guest host turned to Kickstarter and successfully funded that novel and a repackaging of the other two. His love for epic fantasy can be seen in those and subsequent works like The Song of the Shattered Sands and the upcoming Tales of Brindleholt. But he's also dabbled in a bit of sci-fi, co-writing Strata with his fellow Clarion East classmate Stephen Gaskell. In 2010, while attending the World Fantasy Convention in Columbus, Ohio, our guest host got into a rousing discussion with friend and colleague Greg Wilson over Kids Johnson's short story, Spar. Now, a year later, Greg would remember their vibrant and incisive exchange as he was pondering launching a podcast. He thought their exploration of genre fiction would have some value to writers and readers and invited our guest host to join him. And dear friends, I am here to tell you he was right. Speculate is the name of the podcast, and you will be hard-pressed to find a more articulate, in-depth analysis of specfic tales anywhere in the potosphere. You're here. Here, here, indeed. He is a serious foodie and can be found celebrating his literary triumphs at Topolo Bampo, Sanford's, or the Hinterland Gastropub in Milwaukee. When not consulting for IBM, when not podcasting, when not writing, he feasts on political and environmental websites and keeps track of his beloved Green Bay Packers and Milwaukee Bucks. Dear friends, please welcome to the big chair here at the roundtable our guest host for this episode of 20 Minutes With. 
with Mr. Brad Beaulieu. Brad, <laughs> thank you so much for joining. And I know, I know, it's Beaulieu. I know, I know, you've Americanized it, it. But but it's spelled Beaulieu. It, well, that's very true. And, and I, I have to take a step back for a second. When you told me that this was going to be a stalkerish intro, I had no idea. <laughs> my, my, my work is done here. <laughs> yes, my my eyes have been opened to the, to the wondrous uh, uh, research of Dave Robinson. <laughs> Thank you, sir. And if you don't feel just a little creeped out, I don't feel like I've really done my job. So. <laughs> I'm glad we're states apart. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> I have minions everywhere, Brad. <laughs> Um, so, so, and, and we're not going to waste a lot of time on this, but you know, I, I, I took French in high school. I know that the word I'm looking at is beaulieu now, that's right. but, but you have Americanized it now. Is that, is that in, in, in ancestral past it was Americanized or did you just say, I'm going to have mercy on people like Mike Cole who can't seem to pronounce any damn thing? <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it, we're, we're French Canadian um, and we came down, you know, f- through Wisconsin and settled and, and who knows where it happened. It wasn't me. Uh, I inherited that name as, as it sounds. Um, so, yeah, it happened before me. All right. Very good. No problem. Bullier, Bullier yeah. it is. I will, I will honor yeah. and respect that. Bullier. Brad <laughs> Bullier, welcome to the roundtable, sir. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, we're not going to waste any time, <laughs> any more than we already have. Uh, let's get down to our 20 minutes with Brad Bullier. Uh, and Brad, collaborative fiction is a thing that's very near and dear to my heart. And and when I saw that you had written a book with Stephen Gaskell, the, the Strata sci-fi tale, uh, I was intrigued. And I, I, I want to pump you for some information about that process. How did you and Stephen divide the 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 writerly effort how does that work and how would you recommend other writers pursue that if they want to do that with other individuals well i mean i'll i'll go to the beginning a little bit because i think it helps to understand where i'm coming from which may be different from where other people would be coming from doing a collaboration sure i went i went to clarion with steve back in 2006 and um really enjoyed his writing uh, he was one of the people he, he, i not only loved his writing, respected it. I also felt like he had something to teach me. And frankly, you know, this is kind of a lonely business. So I wanted to be able to have a shared experience with another writer, um, you know, step out of the office in a way so I can <laughs> work with somebody who's doing the same things that I do. I mean, it's the same reason I go to conventions as well, just to, <laughs> to meet up with people. Sure. Um, so, so, you know, I kind of put, put things out there to Steve and I had a, a, the, just the nugget, a bare nugget of an idea for the story itself, which is, racing over the surface of the sun with uh, like through these manufactured um, uh, magnetic uh, sphere, or not spheres, but like circular arrangements uh, or, or like tunnels that they create, you know, so it's just racing on the surface of the sun. Uh, and I, I took it no further than that uh, on purpose so that Steve would have some skin in the game, too. OK, so so I approached him and he was he was interested and we started, you know, fleshing out the world first. Um, and the characters a bit as well, you know, and, and it turned uh, from something that was sort of racing focused in the beginning to kind of a statement about, um, you know, the Strata name comes in uh, quite well with the, the Strata of society. You know, there, there are clear haves and have nots on, the, on this uh, solar mining station uh, that, that these people live on and where the races uh, happen. And there's there's different platforms that all um, sort of comb the surface of the sun and, and beam microwave energy back to earth uh and the, but the story really unfolds between an old racer who's who's kind of washed up uh, but has a lot to teach 
and he works as a handler uh, on uh, a racing team who sort of controls the the uh, uh, controls of these these pods that, that race across the surface of the sun. And then this young racer who is very gifted, uh, but a little brash, you know, so these two kind of work together uh, and um, work within this this growing burgeoning movement, a political movement on, on this station. Uh, okay. And I won't I take it further than that. Uh, but so we broke it up by because we had two characters, we sort of gravitated to one each. Uh, oh, okay. Steve started writing the the older character, and I started writing the younger, and and we sort of just went back and forth like that. Uh, and eventually, we found that uh, we were gonna we were gonna have a frame story, um, and have this outer frame and an inner frame that was uh, in a different time uh, time frame, uh, and. It worked out that uh, we, we kind of abandoned that uh, a little bit and started writing each other's stuff. You know, so by the time we got to the third, fourth, fifth drafts, we were writing each other's stuff and our own stuff over again. And then I would send it over to Steve and then he would go through a draft. We ended up doing 22 full drafts, I think, by the time we were done. Wow. Uh, oh, yeah, man. it ended up being 20 some thousand words. And so over, you know, over how much time? Oh, gosh, it was probably nine months to a year. I forget, maybe even a bit longer because we started talking about it first and we were both busy and we kind of put it on the back burner a bit. So it was probably a year and change. Uh, That's still pretty impressive for, for 22 drafts. Yeah, yeah. In You know, so I guess it, it was a lot of, um, you know, at first it was us taking over different characters and writing different threads. But by the end, uh, I think a lot of people have said this to me after uh, I've I've done that and talked to them about collaborations uh, by the time you're done, you often don't know what you wrote and what the other person wrote. <laughs> you know, th there may be a couple of, you know, key phrases that you kind of remember and are proud of. Uh, but by and large, I, I honestly will look at it and I can't remember who did what. OK. Um, and so I don't know. They, that worked for us. I know some people will will uh, they'll plot together. One person will write and the other person will edit. You know, they'll kind of edit back and forth at that point. Right. Um, but you uh, took the idea of, of each of you taking a different POV character and each of you driving the story forward. Yeah. And then, you know, we would get through, say, a scene or a chapter's worth of material, maybe a couple of scenes. And then we'd, we'd stop and we'd, we'd talk again because for me, and, and I think this was true of Steve, too, we'd, we'd get a little further and a lot of questions would pop up. And so we'd have to talk about those. Uh, so we'd iron those out and then the next person would take over and we'd go through that um over and over again until the first draft was complete, uh, you know, and then it was a matter of reading through, seeing what didn't work. Uh, and because we were working, you know, two minds working on the same thing, it was rougher than probably it would have been if either of us had worked alone. And that's why we had so many drafts. It was just finding, it wasn't finding either of our voices. It was finding our combined voice, which was just difficult to find, frankly. Um, and did, did you find that, you know, as you, as you observed, as you got farther into the story, uh, it became harder and harder to tell who was writing what when you look back on it. Did you then, did that then necessitate going back? Is that, is that what like revision 15 through 22 was, was bringing that all together? Um, yeah, I guess so. You know, the, the nowadays, my early drafts are, are really very structural. I try not to worry about like the wording too much. Um, and I think that was true of, of our work together, too. We just just getting what the story was about. And we, we were both working on some, I don't know, kind of cool spec fictional elements um, and, and the, you know, this big station and life aboard it and figuring out what the, you know, the social um, stratas and, and moors were like and um, 
political affiliations, the history back on Earth, on and on. There was just so many things we, had, we <laughs> wanted to have worked out that would advise us. But it didn't come clear until midway through that whole process, you know. So then we had to incorporate that stuff. And then, yeah, and then, you know, the last, I don't know, five, six drafts were, were really just paring it down, getting it smooth. Sure. Sure, yeah. sure. So, so best piece of advice for for individuals wanting to pursue a collaborative project? Um, gosh, I, you know, I'd say um, if if I could only give one piece of advice, it would be <laughs> be, be ready to to give up um, control, right? Because it, it is not your story; it is is both of your stories. Right. Uh, and I I actually wrote another one that's uh, not yet published with Rob Ziegler. Uh, it was a very similar experience, but um, Steve and Rob are, are different writers, so it was a it was a it was a different experience. It was another collaboration. Some things were the same, but a lot of things were were different. And we had, you know, we were aligned in a lot of ways, but there were some ways that we weren't, you know. And so, you have to be prepared to find a middle ground, you know. And if you believe in something, you want to fight for it. But if if you you have to try to see what they're saying as well, just like you do when you get feedback on your story. But this is even more important to to make sure you're you're listening to their words, you know. Okay, that makes and and obviously you're both coming at this from a position of mutual respect so respect to the other person's storytelling chops awesome very cool we'll be back with more of our conversation with brad bollier after this brief promotional break hello there my name is marshall latham and i'm the host and founder of the journey into podcast and i'd like to tell you about my kickstarter project for many many years i have enjoyed the works of edgar Allan poe Poe was one of the first American authors who attempted to make a living at writing short fiction. In doing so, he practically became the inventor of several of the genres of speculative fiction that we enjoy today. He's mostly known for such macabre tales as The Telltale Heart and The Cask of Amontillado and The Fall of the House of Usher. And of course, who can think of Edgar Allan Poe without thinking of his poem, The Raven? On the Journey Into podcast, I've had an annual Edgar Allan Poe month where I feature his tales as well as stories inspired by his work. This year, I wanted to do something really special. Something I've always wanted to do is to commission a professional author to write a Poe-inspired tale. At the top of my wish list was author Ken Scholes. Ken is the award-winning and critically acclaimed author of over 40 short stories and four novels in his five-book Psalms of Isaac series. I've enjoyed Ken's work for many years, and when I asked him if he'd be willing to write an Edgar Allan Poe story, he was all in. But I think Ken deserves to be paid professional rates for his work. And the only way for me to do that is to start a Kickstarter. And so if you go over to kickstarter.com and do a search for Poe meets Ken, you should find it there. You can take a look at the different donation options and the extra rewards that I've offered. It's a comparatively small goal of $560. So please, check out this project, and if it's something you think you'd like, contribute however much you would like. If we're successful, Ken will write his story, and I'll produce it as a full cast audio production. Thanks for listening, and journey on! Now, let's get back to the conversation with Brad Bollier. Yeah, I think your your example there about, you know, the things you're realizing about the culture and what, what you needed to flesh out about the world, uh, that leads me into 
a question that actually uh, came from someone else. We put out questions to our listeners and say, hey, do you guys have any questions for, you know, Bradley Bollier tonight? And uh, you, do you know Tracy Erickson? Sure. Yeah. So he's, yeah, friends yeah. With a, he's friends with a lot of us on Facebook, right? And so Tracy said, ask him how he goes about world building to get such brilliantly realized worlds. And... <laughs> I, uh, I I had the pleasure of reading some of um, your book that's going to be coming out with Daw in August of 2015, The Twelve Kings in, is it Sharakai? Sharakai, yeah. Sharakai, yeah. Yep. Um, and uh, I, I noticed that right away. The world building was really uh, permeating the story in a really cool way. Um, so uh, that was one thing that Tracy insisted that I, I talk to you about. So uh, I wanted to let you let you kind of riff, riff on that for a little bit. <laughs> Keep, keeping in mind that the show is called 20 Minutes With, not 20 Days With. <laughs> Unfortunately, because we could probably wax for 20 days about this topic. Yeah, it, it's I mean, it's one of my favorite topics, really. And, and uh, Dave, I, th I don't think you were in this particular seminar that I gave at Gen Con, but um, I, I give a number of talks at, at, at uh, different conventions. And one of the things I talk about a fair bit is the fact that I used to, um, I, you know, I think I always wanted to have these these really rich and wide worlds. I mean, my you know, the people that I love were Tolkien, of course. Uh, Martin, Guy Galver K, C.S. Friedman, um, you know, people that really have these kind of fully realized and not just fully realized, but but like deep and complex uh, worlds. Uh, and so um, when I first started writing, I, I just, you know, I didn't know how to write or anything. So I would just get into the story and and, and I'd have an idea of where I was headed, but uh, I, I hadn't spent a lot of time on the world itself. So, you know, it was fairly cliche, of course, when uh, the first couple of trunk books that I wrote. Um, and, uh, I've changed a lot since then, uh, with world building in particular. So what I do is I take a lot of time ahead of time. So like right now, um, you know, 12 Kings and Sharkai is ready to come out next year, but, but I spent three or four years letting that marinate before I wrote the first word. And right now I have two new ideas that are doing the same thing sitting in my hindbrain and I'm working on them now and again, when I get time, um, and, and fleshing them out a bit, you know, what, another epic fantasy, another kind of a YA epic tale as well. So those two things are just kind of, you know, collecting, accreting, hopefully over time, um, so that when I'm really re ready to work on them, you know, I start deepening all the stuff that I've worked on over the last year or two or whatever. Um, and then, you know, I figure out what, what cultures are in play, what the world looks like, uh, geography on and on. Uh, and that advises me a lot on what the characters are going to be like, you know, so these these characters come out of this this world that they live in. And, and by world, I mean, just like their kind of local geography. So they have the, the culture and the religion and, and you know, the familial um, influences. Do, and, you, do you start with the, the, the geography or do you start with the culture and the societies? Uh, culture and society, I guess. I, I have a mapping program and I, and I do like using it. I use that in Windsor Kalakovo. Uh, to figure out what everything looked like, where it sat, because those were uh, on a, uh, a group of archipelagos, the the main story in Windsor Kalakovo. Fractal terrains, right? Yeah, so you can you can like re you can set all these these um, parameters for what the world is going to look like, and it will generate it, and you can generate it over and over again um, with different seeds, just to get a different sort of looking world, uh, but similar looking. And, and yeah, so I, I do that and I did, so I did that for uh, 12 Kings as well. Um, and that helps me figure out what resources are available, how, how that might make them contend with one another, might spur wars, you know, that kind of thing. Sure. Um, and 
so once I have the the world fairly well defined and the and the characters start you know uh, growing from that soil, uh, you know I have some idea of what the story is about by this point and and even early on, um, and then I start working on that, that a bit harder at that point and the, the world building helps me a ton. Um, I rely on it so much more than I used to because it's it's uh, uh, it's a, just a great. Um, when I get lost, it can tell me and get me back on track. It can lead me, you know, back to the story because uh, it's just full of so many ideas from all the work that I've put in already. Sure, it's almost like a creative touchstone that you can go back to and say, what was I so excited about with this? Oh, right, I remember. Now, let me ask you, Brad, do you do some of the legends and, and the mythologies of these worlds evolve during this stage of things or is it more as you're writing and, and investing the characters into the world? Um, uh, you know, during the, the world building, I, I like putting some of that in, um, characters, even, you know, gods that I have, like in, uh, 12 Kings, there are gods that are real and they play a part in the story. And the same is true of a middle grade, uh, project we're working on that's Norse inspired. So these Norse gods are, are in play, uh, in the story. Um, and, and a lot of times I can't, um, I go through the first draft really figuring out who's who and what's what. Um, I have a pretty good idea from all the work that I put in early on, but I just I just can't get a good handle on all of them until I find some of these touch points, these flare points that help me figure out what are they really like. Uh, and so by the by the end of the first draft, I find that the end is kind of refined because I I know sort of what they are by that point. But the beginning is pretty pretty raw in terms of character because I just didn't have all that stuff in place. So that's my zeroth draft uh when i finish <laughs> the first my you know when i type the end for the first time that is my zeroth draft that is not a readable first draft in my mind you know because i've taken a ton of notes on characters i know them more i know the world better so my next draft uh is my my true first draft uh i i feel like it's a it's a whole story at that point okay yeah. so the, the world building is the 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 thing that you focus on the most before you dive into the writing then is that right yeah yeah i, I would say so you know uh, I'm trying to get the story and I'm trying to get the characters as I go along. But um, I just really want, you know, I, I love, you know, like unique worlds, uh, uh, immersive worlds. Uh, so I enjoy that stuff. And that's so that's kind of what I let sort of sit and then stew, you know, for the, for the first year or so. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I, yeah, I think there might be, uh, you know, a lesson in that, that really anything you want to uh, work on in any given book, anything you want to be good for any given book, you focus on that as much as you can before. I mean, not everyone writes that way. Everyone writes differently. But, you know, you think things through in any given part of the book um, that that's going to become a strength, probably, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, th I think so. Um, and and I'm, I, I say this a lot in my seminars, too, like uh, I'm a big proponent of trying to trying to give yourself the leeway to do like exploratory drafts or or drafts of older backstory that you may never use uh it, it releases the tension a little bit the stress of writing and you know making it perfect if you know you're not going to use it and, and, and it also advises you a lot on you know what's going to come later um you know you may end up using that stuff in the end but um but it's i, I think it's a good way to uh to break the ice a little bit. Now you've observed on on speculate with Greg on, on several occasions that there's a trend uh, among contemporary authors uh, uh, to release uh, novellas and and short stories that are either 
you know, prequels to their full-on novels or just a side story that they really wanted to explore. I, I can only imagine with all of the world building that you do in preparation for your novels that that you have a veritable you know, treasure trove of short stories that you would love to take a nibble at. Is that true? Well, I mean, you know, there's, there's snippets and things. Um, I, I don't, uh, you know, write them whole cloth, uh, and have them sort of sitting, uh, ready, but, yeah. uh, I do want to do that for, well, so, so one example is in the, the winter watch, uh, world, the tales of the Brindleholt series. Uh, I wrote for, um, my short story collection, a, uh, a short story for that world, uh, as part of the Kickstarter. Cause I knew I wanted to do it and the world was already kind of fleshed out. And so I wanted to explore some of the characters and, and such. Uh, so I did that. And it's interesting because that is, um, I had not yet found my voice that, that is still kind of my, um, my epic fantasy adult, uh, author voice. Uh, and I, I hope I've come pretty close in, in the writing of winter watch, which is done at this point. Um, finding like kind of a middle grade voice. Right. Uh, so it'll, it'll be interesting for me to, to kind of go back and look at those, uh, cause they're, they're, they're not the same. And I don't know if I'll release them together, you know, at this point I might have to rewrite it or, or just write something new, um, but, but they yeah. were val- they were valuable to you in the context of, as you say, finding your voice for the the, the full work. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I pushed as hard as I I could at the time. It felt like I was writing, you know, a, a middle grade voice, but it, it wasn't. You know, when I went back and looked, so it was a stepping stone. Um, you know, it got me partway there, and and you know, hopefully, I'm there. We'll we'll see. Okay. Very yeah. cool. Very yeah. cool. Brad, you had a really cool uh, article at a dribble of ink, um, Aiden Mohair site. Mm-hmm. Uh, change can be a good thing or not. It was titled, uh, and it was about character growth. And you mentioned that uh, you were on a panel one time with Pat Rothis and, uh, uh, Timothy Zahn and some other folks. Yeah. Um, and, uh, the, the question came up about, uh, you know, should, should characters necessarily have this growth arc? Should there be a character arc in the story? And I, I wondered if, since you've written that, if you've had any, you know, further thoughts on that topic or, uh, where you, where you kind of, how do you feel about that at this point? Um, it, like the, the for, for our listeners, uh, one interesting thing that came out of it, you know, is that you have two types of characters. There's, um, a, dram- a uh, dramatic or dynamic character, which is a character who has a growth arc. They, they change, they, 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 they most likely grow in some way. Um, and then you have iconic characters. I've seen some people call it, which is more like a, uh, a James Bond or a Harry, Dres- Harry Dresden or Sherlock Holmes type, um, who's not necessarily, you know, changing, but, uh, it's a different kind of character. I th- and it was a really neat, uh, article and discussion. So, um, yeah. Have you thought about a lot, any more about that? Well, um, yeah, I mean, I, I use that a lot in, I mean, it, be, it became more conscious as I wrote that, uh, pulling some of my thoughts together about character and, and also what Pat had said, you know, so, so I was talking about on this panel, uh, like characters should change, you know, and, and, uh, Pat was like, well, you know, you better be careful because readers <laughs> want characters, um, you know, they, they may want them, you know, a little bit different, but they really want them to be the same. And that that's true of like, uh, the following story in a series, uh, that's true of their next book that they pick up. If they love epic fantasy or urban fantasy or what, what have you, they kind of want what they had before only different, same, only different, you know? So it's, it's a, it's a weird mix, but it's true. Um, and so, uh, so you do have to be a bit careful about that. And so like in winter watch, as, as I was writing these, um, these kids, one of the things I absolutely wanted to be able to do was, um, show them growing in power. Uh, you know, they learn and they're changing in that respect. They are leveling up in effect, 
Um, and they're able to take on more, but at the same time, just like in video games, uh, as you get more powerful, so does the enemy. So that in, in a way, it's kind of the same fight over and over again, you know, so that's like the same but different, you know, sort of aspect. So I think that's true of a lot of like uh, sort of heroic uh, fiction as well, uh, where you're sort of rooting for these same characters throughout, you know, a series. Uh, they may go through a, a fair bit, but you, you love them for a reason and you better be careful about changing that overly much. Yeah. Well, and, and you've got people like like uh, Jim Butcher and, and the Dresden Files or Glenn Cook's uh, brilliant Garrett novels. Uh, uh, and and you, you go back for that character, whatever changes they go through. But I distinctly remember reading Stephen Brust's Jureg and then reading the subsequent novels in the series. And Stephen was very good about making the lead character, Tatos, change. And the tone of the stories changed. And I'm, I'm ashamed to say I, I stopped reading mm. because Tatos. Taltos had, had become a different character, not not the one that I had fallen in love with so much. And I I I, I say that hesitantly because that's kind of makes me I think a shallow reader. But by the same token, it it speaks directly to what you're talking about. Where if you change your character too much, uh, uh, you risk you risk changing the story and pulling the rug out from your reader's feet. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I just started reading um, Scott Lynch's uh, Lies of Lothamora and Red. Skies over Red Seas. No, Red Seas under Red Skies. <laughs> I was fair which way it is. And then Republic <laughs> of Thieves. And, um, you know, I had I had just not, uh, I, I heard t a ton of things about it and I just hadn't picked them up. But, I, you know, like last year I read the first one and I, I love those things. Uh, I, but, you know, my favorite part is the younger Locke uh, where we're seeing him grow up with Father Chains uh, in this temple and they're, they're learning how to grift basically and then learning how to be a team and then the Gentleman Bastards. And I, I had followed closely because I follow the, you know, sort of the blogosphere, reviewers, you know, seeing what's what's hot, what isn't, you know, whatever. Um, mm -hmm. And I and I saw that people had, you know, loved lies. And then the second book where they were people were a little cool on. And then the third book, you know, they were like, Scott's back. Yay. And, you know, <laughs> and when I read them, I, I felt a little bit of that because um, Locke had he, he changed from book one to book two. And it was for good reason. Uh, you know, he, he went through a ton of of um, grief and pain at the end of the first book. Um, and so it was it was understandable, uh, but I, I didn't I didn't like it as much because mm -hmm. he was not the same carefree, you know, thief uh, running around and then pulling these, you know, scams uh, that I remembered from book one. And then he's kind of back that that way in book three again. So I'm really digging it again. Uh, you know, I still like book two, but um, yeah, so that rings true for me. So it really comes down to really, are you are you writing a series or are you writing a standalone? A standalone, you probably have a lot more uh, leeway in changing the character because it's for a contained story. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I read um, Neil Gaiman's uh, Ocean at the End of the Lane mm -hmm. uh, recently. And, um, you know, it, it goes from a, a boy... Uh, and it's mostly told as that boy, but there's kind of this frame of him as an older, um, a man, basically he's, he's grown up and he's kind of, he's going back and he's remembering what happened at the lane where he grew up. Uh, and, and, you know, he goes through a lot as well as he, as he grows up and so do the other characters that he meets. Uh, but it's a brilliant story. That's one of my favorite <laughs> stories of the past, you know, five years plus. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's true. I think you have more leeway there. And that's probably uh, why some people gravitate towards those kinds of books as opposed to writing a series you know i some some writers just don't like series they don't like writing them they probably don't like reading them either 
Sure, sure. You get to burn more bridges when you yeah. only have one story, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess. I guess. <laughs> well, gentlemen, I'm I'm looking at our clock, and it it has sprouted twelve masts and is starting to drift off on the air out of the room. I assume that means uh, our twenty minutes is long, long gone. <laughs> uh, uh, and and Brad, I, I it bums me out because I've got like three more questions I want to ask you. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll have to arrange to have you back on the show at some sure. future date. Uh, so very cool, very cool. Thank you, sir. So very much for taking time i know you were traveling today and you and you came at came down and and got on the skypes we really appreciate it. this has been a great conversation absolutely thanks for having me on absolutely absolutely moses what are you taking from this conversation man um, i'm thinking about bradley you know I can see you as a DM when you're younger like you probably had these incredibly <laughs> you probably had these incredibly detailed worlds right you were like yeah had notebooks full of, you know, notes and all these things. Yeah, and, yeah. uh, you know, and, and, uh, and that's why you're a good world builder. You, you know, you, you're oriented to that you have a passion for that. Um, you know, we, Patrick Roth has said on a recent uh, panel that I filmed at Phoenix Comic Con, we all get geeked out about certain things, right? And 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 that's where our strengths lie. Uh, and so, you know, the, the the truth is, if you want to be better at something, you got to put the work and time in. And uh, that's your, you know, you, you do that. So it's, it's just it's a good reminder. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and I think Brad's life pretty much is a, is a testament to that dedication and commitment. No, no, no question about it. Yep. For for me, there were two things that really resonated for me. One was the discovery that 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 Brad and and Stephen had done the same thing that I'm doing in the collaborative work that I'm undertaking with with uh, Colin Barnes and Alistair Stewart, where we all take a POV character. That was very affirming for me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but also, and it was just a minor thing, but it really stood out for me, and I think it's something that. You know, I people in my writing group need to remember, and and just young writers in general, uh, uh, that there is a zeroth draft. Uh, uh, that 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 giving yourself permission to say this draft that I'm writing, no one will ever see. I don't even want to look at it, but I got the story down. Uh, uh, and and having that foundation that you can then build on and edit and revise and rewrite as you go forward. I, I don't think that lesson can be drilled home enough in terms of its value to young writers and when i say young i mean me <laughs> so, <laughs> so there we go well uh friends this you i hope you've enjoyed this as much as we have uh i i i'm not even gonna i'm not even gonna say i hope i know you did uh, uh there was a wealth of writerly goodness to be had here uh, uh so here's the deal you guys come back in a week we're gonna have brad back and we're gonna take all of that world building mojo that writerly goodness that he brings with him and we are going to apply it to a brainstorming session of of clearly epic fantasy magnitudes given given the cast of characters <laughs> that we have already so so do come back and join us for that but that's wow that's like a whole week away that's a lot of time moses what should our dear listeners be doing for the next seven days uh, since we're talking craft here, I do want to recommend a book. There's a book called Writing Tools by Roy Peter Clark. That's one of my most, uh, probably the, one of the books that's influenced me the most as a writer. I just picked up probably more awesome tricks from that book than anything else I've read. Uh, so that's that's something to put on your uh, your reading list. Uh, alternately, you can find the book that inspired you that you learned things from and read it again because every time you read a good book like that, you're going to pick up stuff that you forgot about. Or you know, so uh, get out there and and uh, you know, work work your mind a little bit on your craft and uh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. What was the name of the book again, Moses? Yeah, this one is uh, Writing Tools by Roy Peter Clark. 
Excellent. I will make sure there's a link to that in the liner notes in case anyone is caught fire by that ringing endorsement and wants to add it to their Kindle or, or bookshelf list. And dear friends, I will tell you as I always do that you find what you're looking for. So set your sights high. Look for the good stuff. Look for look for the top shelf blue label goodness. And dear friends, I promise you, you will find it. We will see you in one week's time. Until then, you guys stay cool, be frosty, be awesome. And we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This episode is copyright 2014 by the Roundtable Podcast and released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David Labroyer, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at writerspodcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.